I'm going to unmute myself. The recording is in progress. All right. I forgot to record last time. Uh, so this is already going great. Because <laughs> I, uh, I remember to hit record. So anyway, uh, I am recovering also from a little bit of a head cold. So my voice is a little, uh, I don't know, we'll see how tired I get, how quickly. Somebody else might have to finish up the class, <laughs> depending on how my voice does uh, as I try to project. Uh, let's uh, let's pray uh, before we dive in. Father, thank you for the time that we have today to uh, explore uh, the words of your son, Jesus, uh, and the way that he leads us to confront mammon, the way that he leads us with grace and with truth to be able to live faithfully in occupied territory. Help us today. Help us to have creativity, uh, enjoy a sense of playfulness as we pay attention to how you're at work in our midst. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so folks, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get as much mileage out of this as I can. This is our penultimate week. This is the penultimate week of our confronting mammon with Jesus series, uh, which is uh, which is fun. That means that means next Sunday, guys, is Palm Sunday. Can you believe it? And so that'll be our final Sunday uh, of this series, and then Easter Easter's will be upon us. So that'll be fun. Um, so uh, this week, I don't know if, how many of you guys got a chance to uh, read any of the readings. It's okay if you didn't. Uh, but this week we're talking about dishonest wealth. We're talking a little bit about debt as well. Uh, we're talking about um, undermining mammon from within man and the possibilities of that, and also the pitfalls of that. Uh, I was I was reminded this week <laughs> as I was preparing, um, Raina, our daughter Raina, who is a senior at Purdue this year. Um, she, uh, when she was little, she, she always had this kind of, I don't know, this sweet innocence about her when she was little. And so when she was little, she just, she, she learned to get frustrated with money um, because, you know, it was just like, she just got frustrated that there was an obstacle to the th her getting the things that she wanted. It was like, oh, we don't have enough money for that. She's like, well, gosh, why do we have this thing called money? And so uh, she, she said one time something along these lines, why do we have to use money to get things? Why can't we just take what we need? And then let others do the same. And at the time, I think I thought she was a little naive, but now I wonder if there's a little bit of wisdom in what she was saying. There's a lot of the more I learn about the ways that uh, humans have lived throughout history, like ancient humans, indigenous cultures, and that, that's kind of thing. That's oftentimes how it worked. Like you just took what you needed, and then everybody else did the same, and it was fine. Everybody had enough. Um, and so I think, I think in some ways, she was seeing through. Uh, the thrall of mammon. You know what I mean by that? It felt like the perfect word for this, but this like spell that mammon casts on us mm -hmm. to be able to think of certain things as naive and other things as like practical. Um, but I think there's a spell that mammon casts that makes us think that everybody taking what they need is impractical and it would never work. Uh, but it has worked, <laughs> you know, in human cultures in the past, it, it has worked. Um, and so I think, I, I think uh, it was interesting because I think she was seeing, sort of seeing it as, seeing money as the nothing that it is. It really is nothing. It's not, it's not anything. It's an idea, essentially, is what it is. 
Um, I remember I heard a quote this week too from Henry Ford, actually, of all people, who said, uh, who said, if people knew how banks really worked, there would be a revolution before breakfast tomorrow morning. That's what, that's what he said. And he, he used the banks, you know, obviously to, uh, to gain a lot of wealth for himself. But he said, if, if people knew how this worked, they would, they would revolt. Because um, essentially how it works is the banks create money by giving loans. That's how it works. They just create money. Like they don't have money. They create it by saying, here, you have $100,000, but now you owe us you know, this much money. So essentially all they're doing is piling, piling up debt upon debt upon debt with no foundation. So it's, it's inevitably going to collapse. Um, anyway, that's not what today's class is about, but something I heard this week that was interesting to me. Yeah, bonus <laughs> round. <laughs> um, and I, I think at the root of all of this is just a fear. It's a fear of scarcity, right? This is what brings us to the, to the point of need, feeling like we need to accumulate things. Accumulate, accumulate, accumulate to my neighbor's detriment. But it doesn't matter because, well, one of us has to be the winner, right? Might as well be me. It's too bad that they're suffering. But we, all, we also have ways of sort of impugning them for their suffering. They're lazy. They didn't work as hard as I did. I worked hard for this. Um, and we're going to talk more about this next week. Next week's theme is accumulation. Accumulation is the problem, not consumption. Accumulation is the problem. Hoarding is the problem. Um, and I put, I put a, an article to read for next week uh, that I, I read a, a few years ago that I, I thought was brilliant. It's not by a Christian author, but this article, based, the title of the article is, It's Basically Immoral to Be Rich. And he's talking billionaires, millionaires here. It's immoral to be rich because there is a world where we have people who, have, who are in need. And for, for people to be hoarding billions of dollars and spending it on yachts is fundamentally immoral, even if they worked hard. Um, but again, that's next week. So bonus rant again. Um, but I can't help thinking about it, I think, because like the, day, the readings for the daily office right now are taking us through Mark's gospel. And in Mark's gospel, the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000, I think demonstrate this, uh, that they demonstrate this kind of fear of scarcity that drives the disciples. They're, they're like, we should send people away. There's not enough. But Jesus always comes back to, there's always enough. The kingdom is a kingdom of abundance. There's always enough. Like at the end of those, uh, you know, with their meager provisions are actually multiplied, even for themselves, after they offer them to Jesus. So I think there's a pattern there for, for us to be thinking about. Um, but this week, uh, we, we want to talk a little bit about how um, Jesus knows that we exist in attention. And Jesus gives us freedom to play and experiment and in imperfect ways. Because we can't ultimately escape the rule of mammon entirely which is what a lot of us feel like we want to do, right? Should we just like cut ourselves off from this ungodly economy, right? But you can't, you can't do it. Like the, the movement of the world has been to globalize this economy. And so you, the only way to be completely cut off from it is probably to join a tribe in Papua New Guinea. But even then, who knows? I, you know, at this point, maybe they're reliant upon the global economy as well. And so we can't really escape this which is, I think, what a lot of us, that's what I fantasize about, right? There's an idealist vision uh, for us. 
Um, but I think Jesus understands that when he proclaims the kingdom of God as a present possibility, and it does indeed break into our lives, the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that God's at work in our community. Um, he also acknowledges that there's a tension between the already and the not yet, and that in our own strength, we're never going to be able to overcome, dismantle, extricate ourselves from man. Now, that's a tension that we have to learn to live in because there's, you know, there's ditches on both sides, right? So the ditch, the ditch of like, well, I don't know, I guess just eat, drink, and be merry, you know, accumulate as much as you can. Jesus is he's just the only one who can do anything about this. So, you know, let's just go for it. Um, or, you know, the despair on the other side, which is like realizing how much energy gets poured into maintaining the system and we can't do anything about it. And so there's despair or complicity, I think, that are that make us feel this tension. And so I, I think today, and I'm stealing a bit of my own thunder from my own sermon, so I'm not worried about it. <laughs> Spencer's super worried about stuff like that. <laughs> joking. Um, so, uh, but I think there's faithfulness in living in the tension. There's faithfulness in that. There's faithfulness in learning to not succumb to despair or uh, gaslight our own conscience and just say, this is fine. You know, don't worry about it. Everybody's doing it, you know. Um, there's, a, there's a faithfulness, I think, in living uh, in that tension. So we, we, uh, I think we often feel stuck between those uh, binaries. Um, and I think the parable that we're going to talk about today of the dishonest manager is um, one way that Jesus gives us this freedom. So let me read this. Some of you are probably familiar with it, and we're going to read it in worship as well. But just to get the story in our imaginations here, I'll do a little teaching on it, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
you cannot serve both God and money. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Anybody confused? <laughs> this isn't, yeah, yeah. He's making this up. This is a joke. This is a, this is funny. Yeah. Almost got me. April Fools. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> this can't be right. This doesn't sound like the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, it's a confusing parable. It comes up uh, every fall, I think in year C in the normal lectionary. Um, and uh, the joke is that pastors will often try to schedule their vacations around this <laughs> passage. Uh, so they don't have to preach on it because it's uh, it doesn't it doesn't comport with how we normally think about what parables do and uh, what Jesus is doing in, in speaking these parables. So so anyway, just a little Bible study for us to dive into and then let's talk about it. Because um, it seems to contradict the end of the parable says you cannot serve both God and money. Mammon, mammon is the word there, right? But then like the other part of the parable Feels like it contradicts that, right? He's like, go ahead and use your use your money, your filthy money, right? Basically, is what he's saying. Like the stuff you got through illicit means, right? The the inheritance you have because you're white, like use that uh, to make friends, and then you know you'll then maybe you'll get into heaven. Essentially, it's kind of what he's saying. So maybe maybe you'll get into heaven if you make friends with your money. Um, but I think if uh, instead of instead of thinking, oh, Jesus is contradicting himself, I think it's a good hermeneutical move to say if Jesus is if this is Jesus point, then maybe we're reading the parable wrong. Right. If Jesus is saying, therefore, you can't serve God and money. Maybe we should go back and say maybe there's a different way to read this parable. Um, what, one, is the what is the therefore? Therefore, in other words. Yeah. Back to back to Bible Bible school. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one of the this is a quote from Hollis Phelps uh, the reading from Hollis Phelps one of the ways the choice between God and mammon manifests itself in actual practice is through the calculated use of money and wealth to undermine mammon from within so again this is about actual practice it's not an idealized vision of what, what would a perfect world look like and let's try to live in a perfect world Jesus understands we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world that's ruled by mammon. So what's, what's a practical way to live faithfully? Well, one way is to take the mammon that you have control of and, and use it to, in ways that undermine mammon from within. Um, this is what the dishonest manager does, essentially, through debt forgiveness, right? Essentially, the, man, the manager is this position uh, that in Roman society, it would, it would, a, freed, a freed person or a uh, slave would, would just be in charge of a wealthy man's uh, resources. And they would have uh, huge uh, sway in terms of how that worked. They would represent them in business dealings. And so this person had the authority to do this um, until he was fired. You know, it's like, it sounded like, hey, you need to give me a report and then you're out of here. Uh, and he was like, okay, well, I know what I'll do because I'm losing my job anyway. I'm going to use the authority I have to just cancel debt. I'm just going to cancel it or reduce it at least, you know, for all, all of these people. And what's his goal? His goal is to 
be welcomed into their home because he realizes, I don't, I don't want to go back to, you guys remember the, the world here, the grinding poverty of almost everybody in this world. He's like, I don't want to go back to that world. I've got this position of privilege and, and uh, some status. And I don't want to, and I, at least I'll be welcomed into people's homes if I do this debt cancellation thing. And so uh, it's essentially Jesus is drawing a parallel here to say what the dishonest manager does with his wealth is what I encourage you disciples to do with yours. Use it to undermine mammon from within. The, the, dishonest, the dishonest manager's actions undermine the mythical power of mammon, right? Because we've talked a little bit about debt, but what is debt? Right? Like David Graeber wrote a 500-page book on it because it's so hard to figure out actually what it is, right? What, what is debt? Well, it's the sense that we owe one another, but it's weaponized in the hands of the wealthy to make it into a, an instrument of oppression rather than in a community where we owe one another. You know, this is Paul, I think, saying, owe one another nothing except uh, for, what does he say, the, the love? Yeah. So we owe one another love. So, what's that? I can't remember. I just, I just couldn't uh, suddenly. I haven't read my Bible in a while. I've just been focused on this parable. What's going on? What's going on? Um, and so basically, he, he undermines the power of mammon within. I think one way was that he just writes down a new number. Like, you can just write down a new number. Like one of the, Some of the supplemental readings, I think, get into this where... Um, the strike debt campaign. Anybody read about this? Fascinating campaign because they learned that you can actually buy debt on the secondary market. So if I'm a if I'm a creditor and I give up on the debt, I've maybe loaned Matt like a hundred dollars, and man, he's just never going to pay. And I've given up on the fact that he's just not going to pay me. And so basically, I'll put I'll put say, hey, Matt Tebby owns a, owes a hundred dollars. Anybody want to buy this? If you think you can get $100 from Matt, I'll sell it to you for 10. So this is a thing that happens, right? And so, okay, so, you know, somebody who thinks they can get $100 from Matt will buy it for $10 and then they'll go after Matt and try to get $100. It's a way to kind of make a quick buck. Yeah. <laughs> Mallory, do I, have a, do I have a buyer? Do I have 11? Does anybody want to pay 11? Right. So that's the idea. And so this strike debt campaign, they went around and bought up all this debt, but then they just canceled it. So they collected money and they're like, we're going to buy a bunch of debt. And for pennies on the dollar, they were able to cancel debt because ultimately you can, you can just say, this is no longer a debt, right? It's, I, I don't know. There's something about that that just sort of pops the bubble of this mythical, like, oh man, I owe a hundred thousand dollars. Well, do you, if it gets canceled, you don't. Right. And somebody could just do that. They could just say that. Right. This is what people are encouraging Biden to do. Right. Cancellation of student debt. Anybody still paying their student debt? <laughs> right. And this is I mean, you know, we could let, let's talk about it in a little bit, because there are some uh, interesting controversies around this idea. But the federal government owes, owns these debts and could just cancel. Them. They could. So anyway, the dishonest manager does this. Um, his actions certainly do benefit the master in a, in a sense, right? Because all of these people are, are now like, you know, happier with the master. 
but it it actually does better work for the manager and for the debtors than it does for the manager uh, than for the master. And so it's not a complete dismantling of the whole system of debt, right? It's still living within the system of debt. Um, it's not dismantling mammon, but it's a way of undermining the system from within the system. And so collecting money on the secondary, collecting money to buy debt on the secondary market and then just canceling it, that's another way of doing this. Um, although there were people who did get frustrated that they were just propping up a system that they, that they saw as illegitimate especially student debt. There's interesting aspects of student debt that make it particularly pernicious, if I can put it that way. Um, and so Jesus seems to be saying, one thing that Jesus seemed to be saying here is that debt forgiveness is next to godliness. Debt forgiveness is next to godliness. Even if it's done for self-serving purposes. It's an answer to the Lord's prayer, which says, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Uh, there, was another, there was another article a little while back from David Bentley Hart that talks about the Lord's prayer as a prayer for the poor. Jesus gave it to poor people that they would pray just for God's kingdom to come and dismantle this thing. But in the meantime, give us enough to eat, like forgive our debts and we'll forgive our debtors and keep us out of court. We know that's bad news. And save us from evil people who will drag us into court. That's the Lord's prayer, <laughs> right? That's it, basically. That's it's a prayer for poor people um, that they would be forgiven the debts that they owe. So it's a way of undermining mammon from within. It's using wealth against wealth. Um, and I think the 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 challenge to it, or the um, the objection to it, is that it is just in one sense it is just charity, right? Some people got their debts forgiven, you know, nobody in this room did, you know, from the strike debt campaign. And so it, it's a way of giving certain people money, but it keeps the system in place. Um, and it doesn't challenge the conditions which make charity necessary. Um, so charity can be helpful, it can be beneficial and even sacramentally significant, Hollis Phelps says. So it's not wrong, but we do have to grapple with the fact that it doesn't challenge the conditions that create debt doesn't challenge those things. I, I was reminded of a quote from Dom Helder Camara, who was a, uh, I think a Latin American Catholic priest. He said, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so I think it's important to, no to note that, that this is part of the tension, that Jesus commends us to use our wealth to make friends with poor people even though that doesn't challenge the conditions of the system that creates poor people necessarily. And so I think we, we have to do that, but we have to do it in a way that acknowledges that we're not dismantling anything, but this is something that we can do, right? Um, the point of the parable, I think, is not to make exact analogies. I think that's where we sometimes get tripped up in this parable. Um, so for example, the master praises the dishonest manager in the parable. Jesus doesn't praise him for doing that specific action. He does encourage his followers to imitate him, but he encourages his followers to imitate him with an eye towards the age to come. So I think that this is an interesting hermeneutical part of this parable as well for me, is the, the story ends in the first part of verse eight, where it says that the master commends the dishonest manager. 
Let me just make sure I've got it. So the first part, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly or with cleverness. And then Jesus' commentary starts. And he says, the people of this world, the children of this age, is another way to translate that, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. So I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what he's saying here, in other words, is people who belong to this age, the age of mammon, the rule of mammon is, is, is happening here in this age. And the people who don't think there's any other world coming, who just think I've got to believe what, what mammon says about life and I have to do my best to make my way. He said the people of this age are pretty shrewd when it comes to like working out, working out deals like the dishonest manager. And he says, why aren't the people of light, the people of the coming age, why aren't they as clever as they could be with making investments that make sense for the coming age? These people are making good investments for this age. Why can't the people of the coming age make the same kinds of investments using the material resources of this age, using the mammon that is, has been gained illegally or illicitly, why not use that to make investments in the coming age? I think is essentially what Jesus is saying here. And so then he tells his disciples exactly what to do. So use your dishonest wealth to make friends. We'll come back to that. Who are these friends? To make friends so that when it is gone, when what's gone? The wealth, right? This, and so he's saying like this system will end. This stuff is going away. You can't keep it. So when it is gone, you will be what? Welcomed into eternal dwellings. So, all right, we, are we good so far? This is a little bit ex, uh, extended here um, in terms of the analogy, but Jesus is saying, make friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings in the age to come. So who are those friends? Well, in the parable, who, who are the people that these people owe it an, an insane amount of money? Like, eight, what is it, 800 gallons of olive oil is a crazy amount of money, right? They're just completely underwater in debt. These are poor people. These are poor people. And we see this played out in the rest of the Luke's gospel, especially with Jesus, the way Jesus talks about um, to his disciples to say, you know how to make investments for the age to come? Give without thought of return. Because making friends, this act of making friends was actually through money was a normal thing in Roman society. Associates, Associates yeah, the, the friends, uh, um, yeah, alliances. There's, there's different like ways of like creating solidarity with certain rules around it, right? So if I have more money than Mary Ellen and I give Mary Ellen some money, I'm using my money to make friends with Mary Ellen, which basically means Mary Ellen now owes me honor. She owes me status. You know, she might owe me some, you know, favors or, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I'm essentially using my money to make friends with Mary Ellen, but I'm the greater friend. Mary Ellen's the lesser friend. And she, that's known because of our relative resources, because I have more money. I have more wealth. So I'm the greater friend. And part of what I'm doing in buying Mary Ellen as a friend is that she will uh, increase my status, increase my honor in the eyes of the community. That makes sense? And that's good for Mary Ellen too. If she thinks that she can maybe use this leverage she has in the, she's got an in with a greater friend 
that maybe she can increase her status as well. There were also such a thing as equal friends. So people with relatively equal resources would be, they would be called equal friends where nobody has any status higher than another, but it created solidarity through giving money essentially to one another. That makes sense? So it was a known thing to do. And what Jesus is saying throughout, throughout uh, the gospel and in this parable then is to give without thought of return. So if you're gonna give money to make friends, don't expect anything because that just, that just creates this hierarchy, right? This top down, this honor system. It doesn't, it doesn't help us escape any of that. So give friends. And then uh, what else does he say? He says uh, in other places, uh, throw parties for people who can't repay you. Give to people who can't repay you. So normally I would give to Mary Ellen in hopes that she would repay me with, you know, honor or, you know, status, you know, this kind of thing. But Jesus continually says, give to people who can't repay you. Who are these people? These people are poor. These are the people of the lowest of the low. And so one, one of the ways then to undermine mammon from within is to use what you, what you could, like the resources you have, what you could use to gain status and honor for yourself or to gain more money for yourself. Instead, waste it on the poor. Waste in quotes, right? Because... Why? Because there is such a thing as called, called the age to come, where the first will be last, and the last will be first, and the rulers are getting knocked off their thrones, and the humble and meek are going to be exalted, where the hungry are going to be filled with good things, and the rich, guess what? Sent away with nothing. So the age to come, it's coming, it's happening. Who's going to be on top? <laughs> it is one way to think about this. Those poor people. So you want to get into heaven? Do some favors for some poor people. And maybe they'll put in a good word for you. I'm being cheeky, but only a little. <laughs> I mean, this is literally what Jesus says to do. Right? You want to get into heaven? You want, you want, like, you want a place to live in the age to come? Well, you know who's going to have a place to live? Poor people. So use your money to give to them. That's a great investment. You'll be being clever, shrewd. Smart. You'd be a smart person to do that. Even though the system of mammon will look at it and go, what are you doing? You know? You got that inheritance? You could have just put that into a mutual fund. You know? Bought up a few stocks. And just, you know, you could have been fine for the rest of your life. You wasted it on poor people. Now, I know this is incredibly challenging. It's incredibly challenging for me because, you know, there's just a lot of questions about it. But I think that's what Jesus is saying. Make friends for yourselves. Use dishonest wealth. And we all feel that, right? We know enough about racism and, you know, to, to understand that, you know, we have, as white people in this room, we have way more than black people have, for example because of not choices that we made necessarily, but the choices that our ancestors made and have been passed along to us. So we have, we have this. Um, and so I think we feel the dishonesty sometimes, right? Of what we have. And, you know, I think white guilt, that, that kind of phenomenon would make us want to like extricate ourselves from the system and say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. But I think Jesus is counseling us in this parable to say, you don't have a choice. You have to have something to do with it. You, you're in it. Your hands are dirty. They're never going to get clean until the age to come. 
And so use your filthy mammon with your dirty hands and make some investments that are going to pay off in the age to come. Make some investments for yourself. Be smart. Be shrewd. Give to poor people. Give to people who can't repay you. Give honor and status to those that mammon is marginalized. And that's a small way. It's imperfect, right? Because oftentimes it just reifies the system. It's imperfect, but Jesus says it's okay to experiment with imperfect ways of undermining mammon. So try it out and then learn and then try something new and then learn and then try something else and then learn and keep going. Does that make sense? I think that's the good news today for us from this parable. Jesus is like, you got permission to play. You're never going to escape it. So, you know, stop trying and you don't need to succumb to despair. You can play. You can experiment (laughs) with joy, you know, make some investments for the age to come. Treasure in heaven is another way that Jesus puts it, right? I can't remember uh, who first said this, but I think it's a beautiful way of encapsulating it. Give, giving what you cannot keep to gain what you can never lose. Jim Elliott, yeah. Give what you cannot keep to gain what you can never lose. That's just smart, right? That's a smart investment to make. So that's, I think, what's going on in this parable. Um, let us have some discussion around this. I got a lot more notes, but we should probably have some discussion. Um, yeah, what comes up for you as we walk through this, as we think through this parable? Other questions? Yeah. Mm. About this parable in particular? Yeah, good. Good, I'm glad. I like, thing, I like when things make sense. Yeah, I'm going to move this computer around well, I want to see what you're saying Laura because I think it doesn't make sense because we often don't know how mammon works. Yes. Right. Yes. And once you once you begin to expose how mammon works, then you can start to see how this makes sense. But if you if you're if you're willingly or unwillingly just ignorant about how mammon yeah. works, it seems confusing and stupid. That makes sense it probably wouldn't have made sense to me, you know, even a year ago. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I think I think with that too is understanding how the kingdom of God works, the kingdom of heaven. Yes. Because you don't think of like the people, you know, this upside down aspect of it's the poor people who need to invest it because they're gonna be the ones that are on top. Like we don't have that mindset. So I think I think as much as it is understanding man, a lot of it's just understanding the kingdom, yeah, how that works. Yeah, and that's and I think it's important to be clear too. It, it's not that we're going to have an oppressive hierarchy and poor people are going to be oppressing rich people, right? That's not it. But, but that's oftentimes what it feels like uh, to people who are accustomed to privilege and power, right? For things to become equal, for everybody to become equal friends, and for us all to be in solidarity with each other, that feels like constriction and oppression if you're accustomed to privilege. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, the first will shall be last. And the last shall be first. Is that that's what it's going to look like? Even though probably what's happening is this generous solidarity that we all have with one another. Now we're all equal friends. You know, I think this is you know this is a this is one of the main points of Hollis Phelps' book, by the way, the, that we've been reading from uh, Jesus and the Politics of Mammon, is that Jesus seems to be anti anything that interrupts God's uh, heart for flourishing for all of creation. Yes. Right? And so mammon 
interrupts that because Mammon says there's not enough to go around and you need to accumulate and you can get as much as you can uh, because there's not enough. And what that does is it ends up, you know, we've got billionaires now and tons of people who don't have their basic needs met, right? Which is, that's a situation that God doesn't like. Make sense? So even in, you know, Hollis Phelps even talks about this is why Jesus seems to be a little bit anti-family. is because family is another one of these institutions that oftentimes functions to get certain people resources, but not others. So. Uh, real quick. Joel has a comment or question. Joel Austin, eh? Yep, uh, great. Could this be, um, could this be saying if, if it's good to, to be, uh, to, to think of how we, uh, or to, to perhaps like think about the quality of, of how we, of how we give, um, are we, are we giving to to appease our, our ourself to to say that I gave to a five hundred one cause and now I can write that off and feel good about myself and pat myself on the back um, versus maybe giving in a way that um, isn't a tax write off but has much more value and is focused more on the equity of the person that I'm I'm serving. <laughs> Instead yes. of thinking of giving. <laughs> Sorry, I'm looking right up here. Hey. I just for, for me, I just I just hear um, instead of instead of giving a uh, giving a um, uh, giving a handout that's that's something um, that maybe doesn't impact the balance sheet of that person. Maybe focusing more on that person's equity. What is a debt that can be canceled? or an asset that can further improve your situation. If that's like a, a way of being shrewd. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, Joel. I think that's great. Um, I, I think you're naming some of the ways that we, some of the ways that we use charity, right. In a illicit, not illicit, but um, illegitimate manner, right. Just to appease my own conscience. Or oftentimes, there's actually great benefit to people to create charities, right? Um, that actually don't do much, but you get to hold these big, you know, all these big uh, events where important people feel important because they're there at the event and they're they're a conscientious, you know, uh, owner, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, I think that's th those are that's the kind of creativity I think that we're called to, you know, to say it's it's not just a quick alleviation of my own feelings of guilt it's creativity it's like how how yeah. does this how does it become more than just you know alleviating my own guilt this is joel this is hard i think to generalize about too like one of the things that comes out in this passage that i hadn't heard before is just how wicked this master is because of the debt because of the kinds of debts that people have for him that can never be paid off he basically has debt slaves and he's just like the worst of the worst. Yeah. And so then the shenanigans of this guy who's dishonest, the dishonest manager, it's like two bad people doing bad things. And then the real bad guy praises the other bad guy. Like, so, so like, if you're listening to this, it's like, well, this is ridiculous, right? So a bad guy cheating another bad guy out of cash from his debt slaves. Not, we don't like take that as a principle. And now we, Right? It's the same thing with like the Hebrew midwives, like not killing the Hebrew babies. They're, they're tricksters within an oppressive system. 
But that doesn't mean now that we become a midwife and lie to people. Like, it takes like a wise creativity to know how to do this. Um, in scripture, I mean, Esther does this, and the midwives do this, and King David does this. You know, all through the, the scriptures, there's, when people come up against oppressive systems of power, mm-hmm. there's ways to screw with that, that we don't then extrapolate and make like a mandated version. Yeah, mandated yeah for all time. Yeah, totally. Um, I think the, the readings, the supplemental readings, the articles this week are an interesting case study for that, where the, they talked about the strike debt campaign, which is one way of screwing with the system, is yeah. I'm going to buy this asset on the secondary market, but not do what I'm expected to do with it, which is to try to get the debt paid so I make money. I'm going to buy it and cancel it, you know, which messes with the system. There's actually a lot of them, people were got onto them. Get, they, they learned this is what was happening. And they were very, very like cagey with people to be like, are you like, you're not just going to cancel this, are you? But what is, what does the person care who's selling it? Right. But they do care because like, you're going to mess with this whole system. Like you need to buy this debt and go get it. You can't just cancel it. That messes with it. Right. Um, But then on top of that, there were some people within the strike debt campaign who did feel uncomfortable with the fact that it was just sort of propping up the whole system. And they felt like, I want, I want to do something more to like put pressure to dismantle this system. So they started something called the debt collective, which was, they basically said, there's tons of people who are unable to pay their student loans. Um, and then some people who are just unwilling, so they just don't pay them. Um, and they said, what if we collected this into like an organized effort where we refuse intentionally together to pay these debts because they're illegitimate. You know, they, they have all kinds of uh, gripes about the debts, you know, they just say uh, could, together we're going to refuse. So it's like a collective refusal to pay on the debts that they deemed illegitimate. And it was an effort to force the creditors to the negotiation table to say, we, we, have, to, we have to redo this because this is, this is bad. We have to redo it. So- Was it effective? Um, <laughs> marginally, yeah. I think it's still ongoing. I mean, you can go look at their website. Um, it's an ongoing effort. Yeah, that was like the one I saved for last because it was like when I looked at, you know, you can play and have it read to you. It was like 58 minutes, but I, I did read it yesterday and it is really interesting. And it actually talks about the debt collective, but it also talks about whenever Trump got into office and nominated Betsy DeVos to be the secretary of education or whatever she was and the things that they started to put in place that were like opposing these, but accidentally then created loopholes to enable the Biden administration to forgive debt if they wanted to. And so it's, it gave a, for me, it, it was very educational to get the lay of the land with the student debt and like what we actually, what is reasonable to be asking or demanding of politicians to do right now. Um, so it's like an hour read, but I want to read more. I was like, man, this needs to be turned into a movie. Like we, <laughs> we need, we need like the big short version of this so that we can all get a better handle on what's going on here. Cause it was really insightful. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of laws. This the article that I mentioned about. But there's all kinds of laws that um, that limit what creditors can impose. But uh, student debt is one of the areas where they can do whatever they want. Really, it, it's it's really really uh, agrees. Like the interest can accumulate in infinitely. 
And it's just it's just crazy, but there are a lot of rules to look at. I think that something I'm just kind of thinking through as we're sitting here is like, it's easy to sort of sit in a room with a bunch of middle-class white people and say like, we need to make friends with the poor people through our money. And it's like, it's exhausting. <laughs> like it's hard and it's exhausting and it's going to really, really cost us a lot. And like, what are we doing? Like, I guess my question is just like, how do we support one another in that? Cause it's like, like, it's really hard. And you know, I think especially like, living in a place where a lot of you know like a lot of our neighbors do need a lot and it's like it's awesome and it's great and it's also like there are times you have a neighbor knock on your door and you're like I'm not home like you know and just kind of that like that like this is this is bigger than just like I paid ten dollars for debt and I'm canceling it and like that's a big part of it. you know what I mean like it's more than that but like that you know that's a big part of it but also just thinking through like what does it mean like when it actually is not even just talking about our money, but also our energy and our mm -hmm. time and our like our families and like what does that mean to like be actually making friends with the people instead of just like giving them, you know, it's like handing out money to people or whatever, but like, and like as a church, as we talk about what does this mean, like how do we, mm -hmm. how do we, you know, how do we help care for and support one another through it because the reality of it is it's hard, you know, it's it's easy to talk about in the room, but it's a lot harder when, yeah. Yeah, it. yeah, I think that's, you know, I mean, some of the listening sessions that we want can be, um, and I, I don't know the best way to do this, but, you know, it might be interesting to, you know, like have people on like our, our table podcast, you know, that kind of thing. just to talk through like, here's what we're trying, here's, here's what we're discovering, here's what we're learning, you know, because I think, I think you're right, we, mm -hmm. we need to, Again, it's not it's not a rule that's like a, for all time. Right? You know, these are these are ways that we play mm -hmm. and learning you know, as we go. It's learning what costs are and, and learning about our motivations. Yeah, so. yeah, I think it's good. I think there's part of me that's like, you know, I get really heady and I'm like, what are the practical things? Like, how can we, you know, how can yeah. we also like make it yeah. like a practical mm -hmm. thing? But yeah, 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 that's that's what I want to talk about. You know, as we go forward. What are you doing? What's the idea? What did you stumble upon? That's good. Uh, I think just to add on that, like I, for Lucas and I, like moving to a new city um, where everyone we've known is like 45 minutes away from us, we don't really know our neighbors, we're in a new neighborhood, we're like getting new people from a church. I cannot figure out an imagination for how to like play out this parable um, mm -hmm. while also balancing like my intentions are to get to know our neighbors and people around us so that I can get to know you, but also to serve you. But then that's not my deep intentions, but it is my intentions. Like I don't know how to like do this with good intentions. And like my inner critic is just like punching every direction of like, it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad. And so I think I feel exhausted on the term of just like, we're still learning. And it's like, I feel like I can say that. I feel like I have look like five years ahead and see myself in the same position saying the same thing like I'm still learning what that looks like yeah. and I think that that's okay but I'm also thinking of that in a fearful way mm. of like in five years I'm going to still say I'm learning but like that just in terms means that like we still don't know how to do any of this and we've done nothing mm. we're just yeah. hoping that like mm. things fall at our feet and I don't know how to yeah, do yeah, that yeah. so I, I think part of I think Part of what I, especially in the sermon, I'm hoping this comes across, but part of what I think Jesus is doing is like speaking to that inner critic 
right? And saying, it doesn't need to be perfect. Your intentions actually don't even need to be right. You know, they can be like half wrong and it's okay. You know, like, like giving, giving a poor person money, it still is a net good, even if, you know, you only did it because you're trying to get into heaven, you know, <laughs> or, or you know, you know, getting to know your neighbors is a net good, even yeah. if part of you is like, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, serve them in some sort of way that makes them better than me or something like that. So I think I think part of it is just this permission. Jesus is like, yeah, it's we don't we don't know our own hearts fully. Uh, we don't know all the effects of the things that we're going to try to do, but but it's okay. Like you're free to play. Yeah, you're free to play. You're free to work. Yeah, I think about the people that helped. Just taking a real concrete example from our church, all the people that helped Shafiq or Chenje or Salas get to the states. And let's say that eighty percent of them have been the ones, but twenty percent of them. Does the Celeste care what their motive was? Mm-hmm. But I think I think we're trained, we're taught to care that motive matters the most. But when it's a life and death situation for somebody, and you are going to help them not die, they don't care what your motive is as much as you. Do. Or we would around it, surrounding. Yeah. I'm not saying motive isn't important. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, yeah. at the end of the day, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe it should be, you know. And maybe you're maybe you're doing it for mixed motives. Yeah. Maybe you're just maybe you just feel guilty and you're thinking this will help me. Yeah. But there's a there's a man that you're helping. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think you only, our other tendency is that we try to figure out our motives before we take action. And I don't think we do. We don't actually know what our motives are until we take action. And then we learn. And then, you know, we, we think, it's a kairos. Yeah, there's a kairos. It's like, oh, yeah, I was, I was really hoping that he would profusely thank me for this. He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's still good that you helped, but now it's even better that you get to yeah, right. this, You know, mm-hmm. you're like, huh. Okay, part of the reason I did that was I wanted to be thin. Mm-hmm. And now, now I get to learn. I get to meet Jesus in this for me. But I still helped, you know? And, it, and I think that the, the action does during prayer um, that then can be fuel for our own spiritual formation. Um, but the action is still good. Yeah. You know? Maybe I can, like, see a lot of my church past, like, teaching the opposite of, like, know your motives and check your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once those things are good, then move forward into action. Yep. Because that's where, like, the hurt or the bad or the evil exists is in your action. Yep. Um, and so I can see how that, like, is going to take a lot of muscle memory to, like, yeah. learn that. Yeah. Uh, of letting, like, action exist before I fully yes. know my it's motives. A, it's, a, it's an opposite instinct. And obviously, like, you have to go into it with an open heart, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, you have to be willing to have a paradox. Yeah. Um, but normally, the people who are most worried about their intentions are the people who will have a kairos. They're willing to have a kairos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it works the other way, too. It works the other way, too, in the sense that I think each of us have been in a situation where we experienced hurt or harm from somebody, and their defense of themselves has been like, well, that's not what I intended. So we, we care about intention and motive a lot to the, to the degree that if somebody says, like, the way you inhabit this space is not hospitable to women, they will say, I love women. 
Well, I don't just, you can't, that can't be true because I didn't, I didn't choose that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And we put, I think we put way too much weight on our intent, yeah. needing to be pure or being pure as to whether we're participating in things that are just or unjust. Yeah. Maybe those are impact more than intent. Yeah. Now, what a great now. segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I like impact is what I'm thinking about. So Spencer and I are discerning sending Cam to the IPS school. And I find myself really excited to be with neighbors and really excited to be with people who don't look like us or inhabit space like us and all of this stuff, right? Um, so I feel like it's less about motive and more about practicality because I, I foresee if I take resources in an attempt to give resources, more and more people who look like me go to the, to the school and the people who I, I went to like be with can't be there anymore. So like, I'm wondering like, what's the, like in the this mm-hmm. year, next year, mm-hmm. I think this does really good work, mm-hmm. but five years, six years, mm-hmm. does the neighborhood yeah. with the IPS going up, people want to move there who can afford it now yeah. and property taxes go up and the people who have been here can't go there anymore. Yeah. And so like, I, I wonder like, what is the, what is the way to discern like right here and now, practically this is good work, but what is five and 10 years, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. This is the gentrification problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. like in ways of leveraging mammon, instead yeah. of giving my money to private school, mm-hmm. taking the same thing I would have paid and putting into IPS, does it steal away yeah. in an attempt to give? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think this is this is part of the learning that we have to do Right, because I think even just being aware of that, like 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, nobody was aware that that was going to be a dynamic, maybe at least I wasn't. Um, and so it's this unintended impact of me trying to do something you know, good, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's where, you know, there's probably policies that could be put into place, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. maybe there's lobbying the city government to, you know, do some stuff with rent. I, I actually just read about a story about uh, a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood in Durham that I think Melissa Flora Bixler is uh, part of a coalition that's trying to do something about, about it. Because they said like over the past, you know, I don't know what it is, five years, 1,500 black residents have moved out, 3,500 white residents have moved in. And it's like, it's, it's, you know, going down the economic path of like, okay, now there's going to be a hip coffee shop and a bunch of white people live in this neighborhood. It's going to be the cool new place to live. Black people will have, they they lived here for generations. Where are they going to go? And they can't afford to stay here because property taxes go up and um, rent goes up as well. And so I don't know exactly what they're doing, but it it intrigued me to be like, oh, I wonder if there's ways you can actually lobby the government to put policies in place that would limit mammon's ability to force black people out of neighborhoods mm-hmm. you know so there was a, a neighborhood not too far from ours that uh, neighborhood gentrifying and a group of people came together and it was a lot of white people who had moved into the neighborhood you know mm-hmm. what i mean but they came together with their whiteness of power and kind of lobbied and said like can we sort of grandfather in some of these houses to keep 
their, you know what I mean? Like to keep some of their like land. I forget exactly what it happened, but like, you know, like, can we, can we fight to grandfather in some of these people as the neighborhood changes and like, it worked, it went through, you know? And so I'm like, there is, there is something that as we come, you know, as we come in, if we can think through like, okay, we know how the, we know how Mammon works. We know, and we have, we have the leverage, like what are ways we can be creative with that? Like you can, you can, you can be shrewd. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. It also makes me just think of like how, how much of like a slippery commandment is that if you try and do something good to make something better, like, oh, there's value there. I can make money off of it. It's yeah. like, I know, right? as soon as like anytime you try and do something good to mm-hmm. make something good, it's like, man, it's right there. Like, yeah. boom, yeah, jump in, take a yeah. person. Yeah. It's a hard thing to, like, yeah. I want to do something good and make something good and make this area nice. And then boom, yeah. now it's bad. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 yeah, it's an opportunity to extract. Yeah, there's value. Boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually. This, like listening, reading the parable this week and listening to you teach about it today, like one of the thoughts that kept coming up to me is how credit could have actually been like a shrewd act to confront mammon or battle debt, but instead it quickly became something that was exploitative. And now it's actually like one of the fundamentally, you know, one of the fundamental challenges that we face in our country is like mortgages, school debts, indebtedness as a whole. So like being able to, if you can't pay a hundred or 800 gallons of olive oil to be able to pay 400 is actually like opposing the system of you just being thrown into debtor's prison or, you know, forever on the outside of society. And it's like, could have been a move towards progress, but the logic of mammon was so quick to like come in and undermine that. And so it's fascinating. It's like that, that close on the edge. Slippy beast. Yeah. All right. Good enough for today. Anything else? Yeah. David Graeber talks about this book of debt, um, which if we were ever going to do like a book study on that book, it would take us a few years. Um, but he, he talks about how market economies, the kind we're talking about, emerged out of what he calls social economies. So, so, so in social economies, which are more uh, older economies before markets developed, people didn't pay for things that you needed to survive. There was kind of this, a much more collectivist kind of, this is, if you need something, you, you get it. And if I need something, I get it. And we help each other stay alive, essentially. And he talks about how uh, market economies develop from the logic of a social economy, but then but then get rid of the social economy. So for instance, you, you pay like a, somebody's married, you pay a bride price, right? Which you're, you're not buying, you're not buying a machine not your possession, but the, the price is communicating. You're, you're gaining someone from our family that's infinitely more valuable than anything we could. There's no compensation for this. The life of a person is infinite value. Um, but here's a token of money in return that communicates that what we're doing is in any right so it's not like a wife is worth two cows it's like this is just indicating that there's this unequal giving and how in market economies um you went from like these social arrangements to uh you know women being slaves or women being like like prostituted or concubines and he talks about how very few very in very few cultures does this shift shift from a social economy to a market economy happen 
without slavery, without uh, debt, and without some kind of violence that backs the money. In fact, some, like in some of the first, the first paychecks that people get are soldiers for large empires. Money has to actually be invented to compensate you for what you're doing to enforce the thing. And so what we're doing here is nothing short of like trying to reclaim a social economy. In a way, it's one way to describe it. Yeah. Trying to reclaim that the market doesn't define what humans are for, what our stuff means, what our what our um, uh, commitments are to each other. Yeah. That that maybe maybe we can defrag a bit and learn how to recover. You shouldn't have to go into debt to stay alive. Yeah. Right. And so I just want to give us freedom and permission, like. We're gonna have the wrong motives. We're not. We're gonna. We're gonna you know things three years down the line at the school we didn't know when we entered into it. We have permission and freedom to get creative, yeah, and to make mistakes and to learn, right? And I just want to speak that out because there can be a paralysis, or I got to know that like, am I doing this because I want to be the white savior in the school? Or am I doing this because I don't know? Just do it and then process your kairos. Yeah, you know, and let's let's do that together for and with each other as a way of, you know, Hebrew midwife in this thing. Yeah, I think that's really good to be able to name those things. I think it's also really good to name being able to be creative and make mistakes and get nitty gritty doesn't cost us much and it's very privileged. You know, like for someone to leverage that as a disinherited or marginalized person could cost them everything. Whereas for me, it's like, well, let's just try this. <laughs> let's see what happens. Um, and I think it's important like for us to name that, to lean into it and do it, but still name what it costs and what it doesn't cost us. If that sure. makes sense. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, good enough for the penultimate session. <laughs> Oh, Say it one more time, please. <laughs> you know it's coming out in the sermon as well. So. <laughs> yes. Um, as as we're talking about this class and moving forward and everything, like, is there? I don't know. Like, is it kind of like okay in the class we like talk about all the things and then like go into your life and figure out like do we have a place to? And I know you've talked about like the podcast or those kinds of things, but. I think that like, several, I know that like, uh, you know, I've sat on Castle's porch and we've kind of been like itching to talk about, and like we're, you know, doing really practical stuff. But I think that, I think I'm just noticing in myself, like in these classes, sometimes I'm like itching to get really practical mm -hmm. and we're still in the learning phase, which is like great and good. But like, is like, I guess my question is just like, what spaces are there as a church yeah. that we have to like talk about to help yeah. each other get creative? Because mm -hmm. it's easy to say, go get creative. But then yeah. you live in, you know, like, a, you know, like Hamilton County sure. suburb, and you're like, well, where am I even supposed to find a poor person? Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we're still figuring that out. I, I do think table groups are a great space for this, you know, for us to conspire together. Yeah. Uh, and there may be other spaces as well. Um, I think part of the challenge is part of the challenge is geography for our church and just kind of finding those spaces to play. So I, so in my mind, then my mind goes to table groups because they're more geographically yeah. oriented. 
Uh, and then some, some sort of like podcast or some way that everybody can get in on this asynchronously, you know, get in on the learning. So I think a combination of those two things might be our best bet. Like a story night, but instead of like, here's a story, here's like, here's what's come up for me and here's maybe a practical way. Does this seem wise? Yeah. You know? Did you see that? Cameron, I booped your nose. <laughs> you didn't figure that out? Or... Oh, yeah, that'd be a great idea. Collect writing. All right. All right, y'all. Thanks for joining us. See you in worship. All right.